0: Our scripture reading today is Acts 8:26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place." And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to to Jerusalem to worship. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, before the sh- its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet says this about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is preventing me from, becoming, uh, from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through and preached the gospel to all the town until he came to Caesarea, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, this is an astonishing story. Frankly, it's a story most of us do not believe. If you are here and you are uh, a typical Torontonian, you don't believe this happened because you're not sure that God exists and miracles don't happen, so this did not happen. If you are a Christian and you are here, you have a different kind of unbelief. Because you do think it did happen, you just think it won't happen anymore, and you're sure it won't happen to you. And I'm here to say that wherever we are in our journey of faith, skeptic, seeker, Christian, we are joined together in our unbelief that these kind of things happen today. And I'm here to tell you that you have some reason to be skeptical. This is an extraordinary period of time, and there are miraculous things happening here that aren't replicated or of always repeated. Past narratives are not prescriptive of what will happen or predictive of what will happen, but they do sometimes show us patterns that tell us underlying realities, and here I tell you there is, because the God we see here in this story is the God who is here in this room, right now. And the God who did miracles in this story is the God who has the power to do miracles right now with you and with me. The same God we see in this passage is the God who is in this room now. And I want to ask you some simple questions. If it is true that God exists, and yes, it is. If it is true that this God exists, and yes, He does. If it is true that it is the same God as the God we saw then, and yes, it is. Can that God do miraculous things as He did then? If He exists and He's the same God, of course He can. Are these Christians that we see here some super kind of Christians? Is Philip some miraculously holy person that deserves miracles around him? No. He's just like us. Is there anything stopping God from continuing to do extraordinary things in our day? No. Are these non-Christians, this Ethiopian eunuch we see who doesn't yet know God, is he any more special to God than the people in our city who don't know God? No. Same God. Same kind of people. Same kind of Christians. These are the patterns of similarity that tell us something that we need to learn as we marvel at the power of God in this story. We need to muse at what this might mean for us in the story we are living in, in, the city we inhabit. And I tell you that men and women, you need to know, lost people matter to God. And when they matter to us, God unleashes His power in and through us to help them experience Him in ways that can only be described as transformative and miraculous. Because in this passage, we will see two things. Firstly, He's the God who seeks people to know Him. And secondly, He's the God who saves people who don't deserve to know Him. He's the God who seeks and He's the God who saves. He's the God who seeks. We pick up the story midway through the story of Philip in the book of Acts. Philip with other Christians has fled Jerusalem and Judea and gone into the slightly farther regions of Samaria to escape persecution. While they fled, they did not stop telling people about Jesus, and people are becoming Christians in Samaria. And now our story picks itself up because in the middle of that sequence of events, Philip is visited by an angel of the Lord, and that's what we have here, a messenger from God himself. The angel tells Philip to go to a road. It's a pretty popular road, actually. It's the road that leads south from Jerusalem towards Gaza and then towards Africa. It's part of the trade route that runs through the Middle East from Asia to Africa, right through Jerusalem, fairly well-traveled. Philip obeys the angelic vision, goes to that road, and when he's on that road, the Spirit of God talks to Philip and says, go and jog alongside that chariot. There are carriages and horses and people walking. It would be a well-traveled road, but that one, go. So Philip is jogging beside this chariot. It's probably quite a nice one because it's the chariot of the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. He is a court official. And while he's jogging, <laughs> Philip hears the Ethiopian official doing what people did back then, reading aloud, because that's how you read in that culture of that day. And he's reading Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, wrote this verses. And they're profound and they're puzzling. We'll get to them in a few minutes, but they're Beyond the understanding of this official. So Philip says, Do you understand it? And he says, No, can you help me? And Philip joins the chariot and initiates a marvelous conversation. So let's stop right here for a moment and marvel at the sequence of events because if you're on that road, if you're traveling, you're just looking and there's all kinds of people going and there's people walking and there's a guy jogging beside a chariot who's having a conversation, a little unusual. Then he gets in, maybe he just needs a ride, you don't know. And to you, it's just nothing special. But we the readers know and Philip knows and the Ethiopian official will know That this is not something random, but a divinely arranged appointment by a sovereign God who knew exactly where and when the official would be leaving and got Philip exactly there, knew who the best person to talk to this official was. Philip was very good at sharing his faith. Knowing all of this, God arranged this appointment to seek this Ethiopian official out for himself in love implications. If you are here and you are investigating the Christian faith or you are interested in the Christian faith or you are doubtful, you need to know this. Your presence here is no accident. Your presence online is not random. Something made you tune in today. Come here today some interest, some longing, some emptiness, some question, some sense of something missing, you may not even be able to identify it, but something brought you here. May I say, change the verbiage, someone has arranged for you to be here. God is the God who loves you. He's the God who has, as the book of Ephesians told us, a plan to unite all things into one unity, Under Jesus Christ, He has gotten you here because He loves you. You matter to Him. He sent His Son into human form, human incarnate living for you. The Ethiopian official has no knowledge of this. He doesn't know about the angelic visit to Philip. He doesn't know about the Spirit prompting Philip. All he knows is that he's on his spiritual journey, and he's been reading, and he's been pursuing. He's some kind of a proselyte or convert to Judaism. As a eunuch, he's not allowed to officially become Jewish, but he came for a festival. He's got real spiritual interest. He sees himself as engineering his own spiritual journey. He has no idea that there's a God who's seeking him harder then he is seeking God. There are no coincidences. There are no random events when there's a sovereign God. God's love is being poured out in getting you here now, just like it was poured out on the Egyptian official. Ephesians 1 says, We've been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. God has you here know that. And if you were here and you were a Christian, know this. God wants to use you like He used Philip, because there are Ethiopian officials all over this city who are waiting for someone to explain the gospel. You may not get an angel visiting you. (laughs) You may not get visions of all of this, but have you not ever felt God prompting you to speak to someone. The God who sent Jesus and the Jesus who said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost is seeking people, and He wants you to help Him seek people by sharing with them what you know of Him. I was on an airplane going to Vancouver with my wife. Um, we were headed to a conference about church planting. We had left Sheila with some friends, She was fairly young. Uh, Normally, Sue and I sit aisle across from aisle so that we have maximum flexibility, but where you can also chat. For some reason, we got separated. We don't know what Air Canada did, but they did what Air Canada does well, and they had us separated by about 12 to 14 rows, and no apologies. So I sat down, and I had a conversation inside my head, getting over the frustration of not being with my wife. What am I going to do with these five hours? And I felt the Spirit of God say, why don't you bear witness for me? Okay. Uh, Okay. Well, you know, so then I turned to the guy beside me. It was a two, three, two configuration. He's at the window. He's got the big, cool hipster beats, you know, headphones on and he's in his world. Okay, God, I guess I don't have to. (laughs) And then I turned to look and see where my wife is. And as I'm turning back, there's a woman where she should be. And she's looking at me and she's saying, Are you looking for someone? And I said, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for my, my wife. Uh, we were supposed to be seated together, you know, hint, like you want to exchange with her. <laughs> and she's like, Oh, I have a question for you. I'm like, Yes. She goes, Do you and your wife both work together? I went, Yeah. Oh, what do you do? <sighs> well, we both work together. Uh, we're planting this church called Grace Toronto. You're, you're what? What is planting a church? So I tried to explain that to her, and I'm trying to get to my question. And then she says, Excuse me for asking, but you seem a bit young to be a minister in in Christianity. What made you decide to do that? And I went, Oh, this is God giving me an opportunity to bear witness for Him. So I stopped trying to get my wife there and turned and said, Well, Let me tell you how I got here, and I shared my testimony of how I had become a Christian many years before when I was in law school. Men and women, I almost missed it. We regularly miss it because we don't think God can do this kind of thing, and we definitely don't think He can use us. God divinely arranges appointments because God's commitment to seeking and saving the lost is greater than ours, and He's calling us to align ourselves with His heart. God seeks. Secondly, God saves. Now, when, when we talk about how God saves people, we have to uh, clarify some things. We recognize there are a great variety of ways that, that this happens. People become Christians through different paths. Some very suddenly, they're leading pretty selfish lives, pretty whatever lies, not thinking about God at all, and some massive event happens, and they become Christians within months, maybe even weeks. I remember being in Ecuador once and hearing that story from somebody. Other people have a spiritual journey that takes much longer. See, Everett Koop, former Surgeon General for the United States, went to church in Philadelphia as a practicing doctor because his wife had become a Christian, and he wanted to just support her. So he said, I got there, and I disagreed with everything that the preacher said. A year later, because he went every week with her, a year later, I noted with surprise that I agreed with almost everything the preacher was now saying. Somewhere along the line, I think I'd become a Christian. There was a young man back when we were at Rosedale School of the Arts, Who was making very significant money. He was single and he was in the banking world and he was making gobs of money and he was bored. And he thought, my problem is I've got the wrong profession. So he wound it up and he took some of his savings and went to Hollywood and decided he's going to get involved in making movies. He loves movies. He did that for a few years and that didn't satisfy him either. So he came back, got on the Bay Street, started making gobs of money again, but found himself very empty. And then he remembered, back when I was in university and went to Ivy School of Business, there was a Christian there who was very distinctive by his love, his joy, his integrity. Maybe he has some answers to these questions that are beginning to grow in my mind and in my heart. And so he called that person up, found him, reconnected with him, and that person said, well, I know a church for you. They let you ask questions. I don't go there, but come with me to Grace Toronto. So he came with him once, dumped him there, and left him. (laughs) For three years, every week, this young person sat and listened. And after three years, he made an appointment with me, and he said, "Uh, I think I want to be baptized, but I don't know the last step. I believe in Jesus. How do I become a Christian? All I did was take out Ephesians 2 and say, by grace, you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you want to receive the gift? Just trust Him. And he prayed and trusted Jesus, and Jesus came into his life. We all have different journeys, but I want to say there are patterns to our journey, and two particular ones are present here that I find present in every spiritual journey. The first one is preparation of the heart. And the second one, (coughs) excuse me, is personal encounter with Jesus. Preparation and personal encounter. Preparation. There's a period of time where a person journeys in life and they become prepared to hear the gospel with some level of acceptance or adherence. That's happened in the story. This Ethiopian official has somehow come to believe in the God of the Jewish people, and he's willing to read the prophets who speak about his work and what he's going to do. That's a huge step of preparation because in Africa, most religions were animistic or polytheistic, at least almost every religion in the world at this time, actually every religion in this world except for Judaism and this new thing called Christianity were polytheistic. They had multiple gods. To go from there to believing in the one God of Israel was massive. He had been prepared. But not only that, he was puzzled by this passage that pointed directly to Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. It piqued his interest, and it opened him up to having someone come into his chariot and help him. He'd been prepared. But then a personal encounter happened. Here, this is the stage in our person's life when they actually come face to face with God. It happens in every person who becomes a Christian. You come face to face with God. Not physically, but spiritually. You feel Him looking at you, and you are looking at Him. And in the story, Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? And here's the passage he was reading. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Who is he speaking of, this prophet Isaiah, written 700 years ago? And that's the question the Ethiopian eunuch has. And the answer Philip has is someone who just died a couple months ago and rose again. Let me tell you about him and about this prophecy. You see, it's a weird passage. But it's a beautiful one because it puts you face to face with Jesus himself. Men and women... Jesus, through his word, by his messenger Philip, is meeting with the Ethiopian and coming face to face. This is how you come face to face with God. You meet Jesus when you hear the gospel usually explained to you by a Christian. A Christian mediates this encounter between you and God. It's what happened to me in law school. It's what happened to every single person I know who's become a Christian. Either they read it in His Word and get it directly from reading it, or they read it and have it explained as is more normal and is what's happening right here. So here, now, so that you and me and we can all encounter God, I'm going to do what Philip did. I'm going to tell you what that passage meant. Jesus is God. God the Son. God come down from heaven by the predetermined plan of Himself and of His Father and entered a human flesh to become human so that He might be able to die for humans like you and me who don't deserve Him. Die He did. On a cross He died. Innocent, sinless man left for dead for you and for me. Why did he die? Because our sin made it so we can't enter in to the presence and communion and love of God. Our sin is a block. Our sin is a cancer. Our sin is a stopper. And Jesus came to take the stopper away and stop the power of sin to stop us from being with God. Your sin and my sin separates us from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and Jesus came to pay those wages by his death so we have life. Our moral rightness is not right enough. God planned from all eternity. God planned to rescue us from this inadequacy, to rescue us from this judgment, from our guilt, our corruption, our misery, because he loved us. He sent Jesus to us, and Jesus was despised and rejected. Let me read the rest of the relevant passage in Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the judgment that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the sin, the iniquity of us all. Men and women, that's Jesus, and he's here now. Crucified risen, ascended, waiting to meet with you right now. Meet with him now. Encounter the God of infinite love and grace, who comes in mercy to you, having died for you and risen for you. Look in his face, feel his forgiveness, sense his love, Confess your sins. Experience His grace and appropriate His joy. Give Him your life now. If you've never done it, do it now. Ask Him to come in. If you've done it before, thank Him for that and experience His grace anew now. Let's go back to the airplane. I explained to her how I'd become a pastor. I explained to her how my life had been completely changed in law school 20-plus years earlier. I told her about my hard partying with my friends. I told her about how empty it had made me. She listened in unusual, rapt silence. She asked me how Jesus had met me, and I shared about his death and his resurrection and his love and how it had changed me, and she was silent for a moment. And then she looked at me and she said, can we go back to your friends for a moment? I said, okay. She said, what were their names? I said, I don't feel comfortable telling you. She said, well, were their names X and Y and Z? And I stared at her. And I went, yes, how do you know them? She goes, you need to know that crowd still hangs together. They're exactly the way you described today, 20 years later. They're still acting like frat boys. I said, okay, but how do you know? Because I was married to one of them. And I lived with that crowd. And we are separated and we're getting divorced. I just looked at her. And I said, God has arranged this appointment between you and me and the people we know so that you will know that he seeks you and he died to save you. I don't know everything that happened to her afterward, but she gave me her contact information so that I could give it to someone in Vancouver who ran an outreach ministry for young professionals because she was intrigued. And we know what happened in this story. The Ethiopian believed in Jesus and asked immediately to be baptized. This area on the road to Africa, very dry through the desert, had wadis, ravines that filled up occasionally during the rainy season and might have a little bit of standing water left. So according to the usual Jewish practice of baptism in this day, they probably entered the water about up to their knees, and then the Ethiopian official would kneel, and then the um, Philip would have poured or spread water over him and baptized him. And then it says, he went on his way rejoicing. 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 Men and women, this is why God unleashes his power for his purposes of seeking and saving because his goal is that we rejoice. In Acts 1, Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is being fulfilled in this moment. The gospel had gone forth from Jerusalem. It had spread into Judea with the persecution. Philip had moved it to Samaria, and now it's going to Africa to the ends of That's part of the reason why this story is here. But the other reason this story is here is to show the power of God in accomplishing His purposes of spreading His love to lost people for whom He sent His Son to seek and to save. If you're not a Christian, know this. God sent His Son for you. His Son died for you and rose for you to pay the penalty for your sins and offers that gift to you. Accept the gift by faith that He did it for you and enter into the forgiveness of sins and the eternality of life with God. Jesus founded His church, every church since He left, this church among them, to tell you so that you might meet Him, that you might hear about His love, experience His forgiveness. So ask yourself, where am I in my journey of faith? Am I skeptical and cynical? Be open to doubt your doubts and wonder about the emptiness that has got you here. If you're cautious but open, go talk to Christians and learn more about the beauty of God's love for you. If you are seeking God, come today. Come here to the bottom of the stairs after the service and let's talk about you becoming a Christian. You must open your heart and receive him by faith. Christian, Jesus came for you and sent someone to you to tell you. Someone was Jesus' witness and ambassador for you to be here as you, his child, and now he's calling you to do the same for others. It's our turn. Take the excuses that stop us from bearing witness and burn them because excuses they are. Oh, it's not my gift. Doesn't matter. You are called to bear witness. It's a command. The gift is Jesus. The obligation of the church is to tell people about Jesus if you're part of the church. That obligation rests on you, not just on me, not just on the staff, not just on whomever. Not just on the extroverts. Most people come to faith, I think, through introverts, by the way. It's not my gift. I'm not adequate. Really? Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 is the Spirit will make you, give you the power to be his witnesses. It's not more training, it's not more classes. Power doesn't come from classes, (laughs) it comes from him. The most effective witnesses for Jesus are not usually the most intellectually trained. They're the most joyful. Because it is rejoicing that our heart knows it wants. It is joy our heart knows it needs. Some of us are saying, well, I I want more maturity before I go out and start being this kind of an ambassador or witness. I don't think you understand maturity. (laughs) Who taught you that maturity was learning more stuff? Have you ever seen a Ph.D.? Almost all of us have, at this point, interacted with someone who has a Ph.D. Does that automatically make them mature? Sorry, you Ph.D. people. You're not automatically more mature because you have more learning. Maturity is not an issue of learning. Maturity is an issue of owning. Owning the responsibility that is yours in the season of life you inhabit. Teenagers, you know this. Teenagers are famous for wanting to be more adult, so they want their parents to take them to the malls, to get them the shopping so they can dress more adult. But dressing the part doesn't make you the part. Maturity is learning to cook for yourself, clean for yourself, pay for yourself, and then... Next level of maturity, learning to do it for others. Learning to pay for others, take care of others. That is what maturity is. You can't be a mature Christian until you start to listen to Jesus' command to go and make disciples. The last command he gave to his disciples after three years of maturing them, he said, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. Go and make disciples disciples of the nations. That is maturity. Do you seek maturity? Seek to bear public witness. Start seeking divine appointments. How do you do that? Firstly, ask the Spirit to prompt you. Secondly, be public about your faith. Now, just put a little seed in there and, you know, what did you do this weekend? No, I did this, this, this. I went to this party, went to this, went to the Harry Potter. Okay, well, well, I went to church. Oh, silence. Silence. Uncomfortable silence. Colleague won't speak to you for three weeks, but he's watching you relentlessly because you've changed the game. Now you're bearing public witness in everything you do. You've just multiplied your impact spiritually. If it's a skeptic who needs their faith deconstructed, live that kind of life in front of them. If it's a cautious but open person, encourage them. Have a quiet beer with them. Ask how you can pray for them. If it's someone who doesn't know how to become a Christian but is there, take out Ephesians 2 and just read verses 8 and 9 to them. I have led, on average, 10 to 12 people to faith every year that I've been a pastor here except for COVID. Just before COVID, I was leading because of what you had done in the hard work of preparing them and bearing witness and them not knowing how, they would come to me. And you're the closer, Dan. You know all the tricks, like how to do it. I go, yeah, here's the trick. I read Ephesians 2 to them because God has prepared them and that's all I do. Now you know my secret. You can do it too. Rex said last week in his profound sermon, There is no U-Haul carrying a person's belongings behind their funeral procession. We leave our worldly possessions behind when we finish our time on this earth. So it is. Let me pick up on that. When you meet God, He will not care about your stuff. He will care about those other investments you have made that Rex talked about. When this life ends and you rise and meet him physically face to face, there will be things behind you. The fruit that you have borne in this life for him. The spiritual fruit of joy you have deposited into the lives of people. That is your true legacy. That is what you and Jesus will rejoice in when you get to meet him face to face. When Philip died and he met Jesus, part of his joy as he entered was the joy of the new life and the new joy that the Ethiopian official had had. And Philip, who preceded us, got this from Jesus himself, who we hear when facing the cross, in Hebrews 12 we're told, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before him, men and women, let us seek and save those who do not know God, and if you do not know God, there is a God who's calling us to help you realize He, above all, is seeking to save you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. May we be a church that lives like Philip, to be obedient to you, that obeys your promptings, that speaks to those who you have arranged appointments with, that helps them in their spiritual journey and leads people to rejoicing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Time for Q&A. Ryan.
2: Okay. We have a few questions. Uh, Let's see here. Um, First one. Uh, Is the angel of the Lord the Father or the Holy Spirit in this passage? Um, Is the angel of the Lord equivalent to the Spirit of the Lord in terms of divinity, or are they completely separate beings?
1: I don't know. Great question. Uh, Scholars are divided over it. Some think it's two manifestations of the Holy Spirit, because in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, we now can see in many cases was Jesus Christ Himself prior to His incarnation appearing to us. So. Maybe that's who it was. Uh, scholars are wondering if it was actually two different people or the Spirit of Lord and just described in different ways. So, it's a little unclear. Great question.
2: Okay, another one. Um, why does God seek out certain people but seem to not seek out others? This may seem like God is unjust in choosing some people and not others.
1: <laughs> I repeat, I don't know. We have expert questioners and a really dumb answerer today. Um, There's a profound mystery in the particularity of that issue of whom God seems to seek and particularly whom He seems to seek savingly, to use the word we've been using. It does… Scripture is fairly clear that when Jesus says to His disciples, you did not choose Me, but I chose you, that we are given a certain amount of freedom… As humans, but that freedom is circumscribed. It's circumscribed by the context we live in, by the training we have, and by our own nature, which inclines towards selfishness and self-dependence. And so, we need help to stop depending on ourselves and trust in Jesus. Jesus says this. We know this, that God does choose. How and whom He chooses, I don't know. The question under that question, is God not unfair in seeming to choose some and make it happen and not others? And so I would say to you, it does feel that way. Emotionally, I know. I felt it too. But as I grappled with this issue for many years, I began to realize the Scripture clearly teaches it. I need to find a way to be reconciled emotionally with it. And as I delve deeper and deeper into this question of God choosing and me choosing and what it meant, I had to ask this question. What I'm really asking God is, I, who have violated your principles and offended you, I am demanding the right to have you forgive who I tell you to forgive. You don't get to choose that. And so I want to ask you the question, in relationships… If five people have offended you, do you not have the right as a person who was offended to forgive whom you want to? Yeah, you do. Justice, if you want to give justice, you don't have to forgive any of them. To forgive any is not justice, but it's not injustice. It's grace. So God is not being unjust in choosing. He's being personal. I don't exactly know who, but I know I don't have the right as the person who's offended him, to demand that I give him the conditions of who gets forgiven by him. That does not inhere to me. I have forfeited that right the moment I offended him, violated his commandments, made myself guilty before him. Criminals do not get the right to tell the leaders of the justice system who gets pardoned. Not the way it works. It's not unjust. And it's not necessarily justice, thank God.
2: It's grace. Do okay. we have time for maybe one more?
1: We have time for one more. Okay.
2: I think one more. Yeah, we can do one more.
1: Short answer. <laughs> uh, I don't. I'll, I don't know. I'll, tell I'll you paraphrase
2: right this. I'll paraphrase this question because uh, it's a little, a little bit long. I think. I think. So if if you're the one who asked this question, you can message me on the phone after if I mess this up. Uh, I think what they're asking is uh, in this passage. Um, it doesn't seem like there's a, a kind of clear moment when the angel speaks to Philip. And so they're wondering, essentially, how do I know in the moment if God or if the Holy Spirit is prompting me uh, to speak to someone? Like, how do I know it's an opportunity? Or like, how do I gauge that? I think is kind of the gist. Yes.
1: So it's like, I've been brought, I've been told to go to door 203. And I go to door 203. God told me to go to door 203. Should I knock on it? I don't know. Yes, you should knock on it assume that when God prompts you, He is following His clearly revealed will to seek and save the lost and use you as a mediator. If He's brought you face to face in an appointment with someone who shows some level of interest, knock on the door and see what... If the door slams in your face, it slams in your... It's happened. If you don't knock on the door, you will never have one open and have these miraculous opportunities. If the door closes, the door closes. Big whoop. If the door opens and miracles happen, joy unspeakable. Are you willing to, ha- to chance a few big whoops for joy unspeakable? Be logical. Of course you are. There's no joy greater than seeing someone's life completely changed by the joy of the gospel. And with that, I think we will turn to the table of Jesus. Jesus, I'm sorry, oh yes, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to ask for a song of response. (laughs) There's more that I don't know than just those questions. Please stand as we respond in song.